I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome back to our broadcast, Joy Bulemwini. She is the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, and she is the leading protagonist in the film, which you can find on PBS or Netflix or any of your video providers, uh, Coded Bias. Joy, it's a pleasure to host you again. Uh, Thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, and we first met at the MIT Media Lab, where Joy is a poet of conscience and of code um, and has done scholarship. And you could have seen her recently on Jeopardy, as I did, teaching us about algorithmic bias um, in a series of clues. Uh, Joy, you last joined us in early 2019, late 2018, when we recorded. A lot has changed in terms of the amplification of your work and ensuring that legislators and regulators care about it. What do you think are some of the most profound changes that have occurred since we last gathered? Yes, so I think a major profound change is from when we recorded, we have legislation that was not existent in uh, 2018. So for example, uh, we have uh, even Minneapolis just in February, banning certain uses of facial recognition uh, technologies, um, joining Boston, joining San Francisco, and over a dozen uh, other cities across the nation that have put some kind of limitation on these technologies. And I certainly want to call out Portland, Oregon, because they have done groundbreaking legislation that focuses not just on government use, but also private use of facial recognition technologies, specifically falling from the American with Disabilities Act to say if this is a public space, right, this is not a place for uh, facial recognition technologies. And on the state side, we've also seen uh, progress legislatively. So in New York, um, they've suspended the use of facial recognition uh, technologies in some schools there. And then in California, there's also a suspension of facial recognition on police uh, worn body cams. One thing that still remains, which was the case in 2018, is we do not yet have federal regulations for facial recognition technologies, but we do have a very promising bill introduced by Senator Markey. It's the Facial uh, Recognition and Biometric Technology Moratorium Act of 2020, Uh, ACLU and more than 40 civil rights organizations uh, have signed a letter to the Biden-Harris administration uh, urging um, that it be passed. And so from when we filmed in uh, late 2018 uh, to where we are now, we have seen an awakening with people starting to have more of an understanding of what it means when the face is the final frontier of privacy, but more importantly, the need to push for algorithmic justice. And that is a testament to your diligent efforts and those of your colleagues, um, but your organization has been at the forefront of this issue. And I congratulate you on your really important advocacy. Um, Do you attribute the fast paced movement of reform in those places, New York, California, and then you're mentioning at the municipal level, Portland, 
Do you attribute it specifically to the reborn um, criminal justice and civil rights movement of, of last year? Or do you think it was already active before that? And, you know, the, the racial justice and equality movement um, re-galvanized or galvanized it anew? So when I look at the space, right, some of the legislation I'm talking about, you can see that the killing of George Floyd added fuel to the fire. So even the fact that last summer we had IBM, Microsoft, and uh, uh, Amazon back away from facial recognition technologies in different uh, forms, you can absolutely link a, a straight thread, right, to the racial uh, reckoning. And even that racial reckoning, right, is preceded by many other events. So when I look at the push for uh, racial justice, I'm very clear that you can't have racial justice without algorithmic justice. And conversely, you can't have algorithmic justice without racial justice. And we know that the fight for racial justice has been ongoing for quite some time. So I view the work um, that so many in the ecosystem, whether we're talking about data for Black lives, uh, we're talking about fight for the future, we're talking about ACLU, we're talking about EFF, ground, so many media justice. There have been so many people um, pushing uh, to resist these technologies. So I see it as a confluence that certainly has been galvanized um, uh, by uh, the events of uh, 2020, no doubt, um, in my mind, for sure. And what about specific acts uh, on the part of companies that were uh, abusing these technologies or misusing these technologies in ways that were inhumane? Um, when you think of the whistleblowers that have come forward um, and the exposés of uh, ways in which um, companies have mined that data and used it nefariously, or I don't know if you agree with the word inhumane here, but used it inhumanely. Yeah, so I mean, what we're seeing are the receipts worldwide of how uh, data systems can be weaponized, how algorithms uh, can be used for oppression. And so I do think we're in a place where there's no longer a question of is there algorithmic bias, right? But really starting to contend with what does it look like to have algorithmic harms? And what we're seeing are that, you know, we're also seeing people are pushing back. In the film, we see uh, the Brooklyn tenants, you know, uh, tenant activists uh, like Trené Moran and others pushing back on the installation of a facial recognition system in their home by a landlord, right? And so when I see these sorts of moves, it is no longer the case that companies can just say, trust us, or there's really not that, there's, there isn't bias uh, here. And we're also seeing that researchers inside companies are facing uh, opposition, our research, for example, when it came out and we uh, analyzed some of uh, Amazon's performance metrics, which were on par with their peers not looking so great, we received pushback, but we were doing this um, externally. We've also seen pushback internally, Google specifically with the ousting um, of uh, Dr. Timnit Gebru, who co-authored uh, the Gender Shades uh, initial paper uh, with me and her collaborator and fellow co-lead, uh, Dr. Uh, Margaret uh, Mitchell. So there's also real risk 
in doing the kind of research that we've done at the Algorithmic Justice League that others are attempting uh, to do uh, within companies. But it's also showing the power of that kind of research where we can say we've looked into it, we've done the analysis, and the analysis along with the lived experience of the X-coded, those who are being harmed by algorithmic systems, usually already those who are most marginalized by society, show us that we're no longer in a place we can just say we will trust what companies um, say and that the AI technology is neutral. The conversation has moved beyond that part where we're not just talking about algorithmic bias, but we're talking about algorithmic harms. And beyond algorithmic harms, we need to be talking about algorithmic redress. What happens when somebody is impacted by one of these systems? What happens when you're assigned a, an automated grade that doesn't reflect your performance? What happens when you're denied medical treatment? What happens when you are not promoted or you're not hired or you're fired due to algorithmic decision-making? And so because we have AI systems infiltrating our real lives, it's absolutely uh, paramount that the people have a voice and the people have a choice. And because we don't have that Markey legislation as law, and because there are not federal regulations enforced, you're describing, you know, probably years worth of um, human rights abuses and, you know, legal challenges that will be forged against companies that, um, that ought to be paying reparations for digital crimes to, you know, in, in, in that's, that's essential. But what may be more essential is getting that federal legislation achieved. You mentioned New York, California, Oregon, you know, Portland, Oregon. Um, those all happen to be more democratic or liberal constituencies. Not entirely, but they, they're run by democratic you know, governors and, and mayors, more so than Republicans. When it, when it comes to the passage of legislation in this year, 2021, um, are you hopeful that there can be bipartisan compromise on this issue and that there can be some legislative output this year? I am hopeful and that hope comes from my own experiences um, actually going to DC. In the film, you'll see that I'm testifying at a congressional hearing on facial recognition. And I was pleasantly surprised that lawmakers from both sides of the aisle were asking questions and very engaged in the conversation. And so I remember Jim Jordan and AOC both on the same page, right? When it comes to, we need pushback on facial recognition technologies, one from a privacy perspective, one from a civil rights uh, perspective. I even remember one lawmaker um, asking something to do with the fact of, if you go to a gun show, right? Can your face be tracked? And so everyone has a face. So everyone has a place in this conversation. I don't think that it has to be on one side of the aisle uh, or another when we're talking about what does the future of democracy look like, which implicates all of us. Right. So tangibly now, take me through your process, because there is the template of the Markey legislation from, from last year. 
But there is also the possibility of incorporating this into economic security or infrastructure or some existing legislation that may be a priority. Um, But speaking from the perspective of trying to actually accomplish this federal legislation this year and having a lot of partners now in the business community who are, who've suspended bad practices and are engaged with you in trying to achieve this, what are the steps you're taking? Well, here it has to be a multi-pronged step, right? We've talked about the uh, passage of legislation at the municipal level, and I think that needs to continue. We have many examples uh, legislation uh, that other cities are taking and modifying. So I do think you want to continue uh, that push to put safeguards or to put bans where possible. So to me, we push where we can. And at the same time, I think we have to be really careful with this narrative of companies leading um, on legislation. We've seen legislation that's been introduced by various tech companies and non-surprisingly, oftentimes the X-coded, right? Those who face discrimination, algorithmic harms are not well considered with this kind of legislative effort. So who's actually holding the pen and writing the laws makes uh, quite a bit of difference. We are seeing a push towards uh, business practices with responsible um, AI or ethical AI, but we also have to make sure that that's not simply lip service to say we acknowledge the problem, but our actions show us otherwise when we see, again, the ousting of people like uh, Dr. Uh, Timnit Gebru or the silencing of, uh, or the attempted silencing of critical uh, research. And so I do think we want to take a multi-pronged approach at the federal level. Again, we have the Facial Recognition and Biometric Technology Moratorium Act. I do believe that creates a great starting point uh, for pushing forward uh, legislation that focuses on facial recognition technology so we can halt uh, what we've already shown, right, to uh, have racial bias, to have gender bias, to have age bias. It's already led to false arrest. You had Robert Williams detained for 30 hours and rested in front of his two young girls, you know, due to a false face recognition um, mismatch. And so the examples of the harms are already out there. People are already experiencing it. It's not just the case of one bad algorithm uh, gone rogue, but we are seeing how systematic racism, right, systemic racism can become systematized uh, in algorithmic systems. So your approach basically is you'll, you'll take the reform piecemeal or comprehensively on the federal level. Um, you'll encourage steps in those directions. It doesn't have to all be in one landmark legislative act. It could be connected with legislation for infrastructure um, or you know, economic security. It could be incorporated into some reconciliation in the future. Uh, you see a, a multitude of ways and, and avenues for, for achieving it. But you mentioned all the harms that have already been enacted. Um, if you're living in a state that doesn't um, legally have those um, vehicles for you to pursue recourse, um, what are ways that you're recommending folks to um, not just petition their government 
um, for legislative change, municipal or state law, but actually be part of a solution to demand um, that, that they are either compensated uh, or acknowledged uh, for the harm that's, that's been uh, caused. Um, there are, you know, of course, uh, there is a plethora of class action suits on any given day, but is there a, a way that you've conceived of how those people who've been harmed who want to pursue damages ought to do so? Now, this is a great question about what does recourse look like for algorithmic harm. We are working on a project at the Algorithmic Justice League that's even focused on how do you identify algorithmic harms uh, in the first place? How do you discover them? Uh, how do you report them? And then also, how do you uh, have pathways for redress? And it truly depends on the type of harm there is. One thing that everybody can do, no matter where they are, what their background is, is to share their story. And it might seem very simple, but it's also extremely powerful. In the film Coded Bias, we see how my sharing my story of coding in a white mask eventually then leads to starting the Algorithmic Justice League. The importance of sharing your experiences, your various stories, or sharing those of others that you hear about is oftentimes we, we hear at the Algorithmic Justice League that, oh, I thought this was an isolated event, or I had a suspicion something was happening, but I didn't really know what it was, or I didn't have the background to really uh, investigate it. And so I do think, again, amplifying what these harms are, keeping your receipts, recording them, allows us to also establish the case um, for legislation, but also for pathways uh, to redress. And so that's something that everybody can do. If you want to learn more about what algorithmic harms look like in the real world, whether we're talking about uh, criminal justice or we're talking about uh, finance or we're talking about healthcare, we have so many examples in the film uh, Coded Bias. And it's exactly to get at this point, right, where people have a voice and people know that they're not alone in experiencing uh, these harms. And what we're doing at the Algorithmic Justice League is working again on a system that allows people to report these harms and seek redress that will take some time to put in place and as we're putting that together sharing those stories continues to be a vital and essential way to resist joy let me ask you about the vaccine or vaccination passport conversation and debate uh, where do you stand on um, either internally you know, within the domestic United States uh, requiring vaccine passports uh, or internationally requiring them. There, there are opponents of the passports who believe that that information will be used in a discriminatory fashion. I wanted your, your assessment of the, of the landscape. Yes, no, I absolutely see the motivation behind the passports, but I absolutely support the concerns where we can end up with COVID creep, right? So we're bringing technological uh, solutionism to uh, areas that require more than a technical uh, fix. So I, I think the risk that come up from collecting that kind of data and then using that data to inform uh, access uh, is, 
is going to be filled with all kinds of discrimination and prejudice because of the systems in which they are operating. And I do not blame people who say, I don't want my data there. I don't want to be tracked. I don't want to be surveyed. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. So is there a way, you know, in, in overcoming this public health crisis to ensure that people are vaccinated even if you're not using a passport system, using some kind of system um, that can be ethically employed and, and uh, deployed um, so that we have the, the safety and security in our communities to know, you know who's vaccinated. It strikes me that if the passport isn't the solution, there still have to be ways to measure public health uh, because we got in this crisis in the first place because we didn't follow the mitigation model, mitigation and actually elimination model of countries like New Zealand and uh, Taiwan and Singapore. Uh, so, so if we're not using the passport, it strikes me that we need something. No, I, I absolutely agree. I wish I had a magic wand to say here is an alternative uh, solution. I don't, but I will say in terms of trust, one thing that we've come against, right, is we don't trust other people. We don't trust what people are saying. And so we try to enforce trust, right, with these kinds of um, vaccine, vaccine passports and protocols. So my, my approach here would not be to go with a process that requires uh, surveillance. Are there systems you can implement that would not be surveilled where you would still in effect, testify to the fact that you were vaccinated. Yeah, and that's why I'm saying that that is the system of trust, right? You know, and that is, that would be a risk where somebody could potentially lie, but I do think that could be an alternative. Right. It does seem though that, you know, if, if the pandemic persists for years, that I don't, I don't know how much trust <laughs> in the abstract, and I know you're not talking about just in the abstract, but how much we can we can rely just on the principle of trust, right? I mean, in the sense that the, we've experienced COVID for over a year now, in all likelihood, even with the advent of these new vaccines, there's going to be, um, you know, public health concerns for a long time. Uh, I'm I'm just wondering if there's a way for um, those who are engaged in the process of vaccinating, we already know that Walgreens and CVS, they're collecting data on these on people who are getting vaccinated. I mean, it, there are war chests of, of data. Um, the question is how you can have efficient you know, systems that are not going to surveil, but still have some trust in outcomes that is, you know, data with trust. And I, I'm just trying to understand how the data can, can be amassed, how we can know each person is vaccinated um, in, in any kind of system that is not surveilled, um, that, that has a basic level of trust, but there, there is some storage. I mean, can you have storage without surveillance, I guess is my question. 
Yeah, I really appreciate the work that's coming out of Data for Black Lives, which talks about uh, no data weapons and the ways in which we can also use uh, data to serve communities. So one of the things we saw with COVID, right, was the fact that the statistics that were coming out oftentimes did not give you statistics in terms of breaking it down by the impacts of communities of color. And we know communities of color are bearing uh, the brunt um, of uh, COVID, uh, the spread of the of, uh, disease. And and I think the other part of the virus, but I think the other part of it that's also um, fascinating to me to see is that the very communities that we're looking at that have been most devastated are also the very communities that have been highly surveilled in the past and have seen the devastating effects of that. So that's why I don't see a, a surveillance-based um, approach uh, being the answer. So there are ways you can aggregate the data, try to anonymize uh, the data, but I do think you're going to have to come up with a system that is opt-in, um, that is not based on uh, coercion. Right, right. Anonymize is, is interesting. I think you, prop, you possibly can store that information and have the essential knowledge about who's vaccinated without having the more detailed personal data exposed and surveilled. Maybe there's a way to do that. Uh, I know we've run out of time. Last time we were together, I asked you if you had watched any of the Mr. Robot series, which is now concluded. I wanted to know if you've seen that since we last met, or if you've watched um, Devs or... Um, uh, the one, all, all shows that I think of your league when I watch and I say, what is, what is Joy thinking about this? No, I'm sorry. I still have not watched it. I went and I filmed a Coded Bias. I, I know. Well, everybody should watch Coded Bias. But if you're looking for an escape from reality that is still dystopian, um, then, then maybe you'll watch one of those series. A dystopian escape. Yeah, right. Uh, Joy Bulamwini, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. Thank you so much for your insight today and for joining me again. All right. Thank you. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, The Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.